Welcome to Manifesto, a podcast. Your regular visit to the archives of vanity, where men and women who stop making myths turn to issuing proclamations. Your guides for this journey, my co-host Phil Clyde, author of the National Book Award-winning short story collection, Redeployment. Our crack producers, Alex Brooklyn and Adam Camara of Racket Media, and me, The strange hero of hunger, Jake Siegel. You guys <laughs> that up. Now I have to do it again. No, no, we're not no, doing no, no, that no, again. No, 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 we are doing that. No, no, I'm not, I, I can't have fun. No, no. Oh, no. We're keeping it. <laughs> All right, that's fine. Okay, the so kid stays in the picture. I don't think I can hear that again. <laughs> you, you say, when we come back on, or actually, we'll, we'll have it here. Keep also a note into the thing for Adam. Keep also... We're keeping it. The kid stays in the picture. But cut out everything I said, but then, okay, fine. Boom, we're in it. Adam, pay no attention to the man <laughs> Adam, behind the Adam, curtain. I'm the one who lives a block away from you. <laughs> okay, hold on, hold on. So the Stuckists were a group of figurative painters uh, who engaged in a very public feud with, I guess you could call it the British art establishment, in particular um, the head of the Tate Modern and the – sort of situated themselves in opposition to conceptual art and in favor of art that was expressive and figurative and, you know, sort of a loose collection of, of artists. And the primary folks here are Billy Childish, uh, Charles Thompson, and Joe Machine is another uh, stuckist. I think it's worth mentioning that Billy Childish um, – was with the Stuckus from about 1999 and left somewhere around 2001 or 2002 uh, and has uh, had a complicated relationship with them going forward in the press, sometimes praising them, sometimes saying everything was boring. I like to say that the inside of Billy Childish's head is a conversation between Vivian and Rick on the great 1970s British show, The Young Ones. That is the single most predictable and boring thing that anybody could ever say whilst playing Monopoly. Yeah, this is part of what uh, I love about Billy Childish, who I know very little about, but was introduced to many years ago. And um, he's just, uh, he's somebody who seems restless and in the best sense, a glorious amateur. Okay, and a familiar guest this week, uh, certainly familiar to Phil and I and to anybody who's in the mix of the New York arts, culture, weirdo filmmaking, uh, bonzo journalism, bagel journalism, bagel and coffee journalism, bodega counter journalism, Alex Brooklyn of Racket Media. Thanks for joining us, Alex. Thanks for having me. I get to step out from behind the curtain and uh, actually talk on the microphone with you guys. I'm really excited. Yeah, we're glad to have you. Yeah, awesome. And uh, the manifesto that we're doing this week that we thought Alex would be very well suited to is the Stuckism Manifesto, which is uh, a work by a group of British artists that we will discuss uh, in great detail pretty soon. But the kind of central figure is wild Billy Childish. Come on now, baby. Everybody in the neighborhood. Shake, shake. I can't 
So it's the original 20-point Stuckist Manifesto from 1999. They are a group that produced, I think, dozens. Uh, the Stuckists produced dozens of manifestos, but we're talking about the very first one, the manifesto that launched 1,000 manifestos. And then the work of art. Uh, Phil, you want to say a word about that? Yeah. <clears throat> Julio Cortazar's The Pursuer which is a long, short story. You can find it in the, the blow-up and other stories, which is about a character very clearly based on Charlie Parker. And, uh, yeah, Cortázar is one of my favorite writers, so I'm excited to be doing this. Yeah, I think it was a, a really smart choice and uh, a pleasurable read. So, uh, But, you know, just to to say a bit more about Alex and why she'd be good for the Starkest Manifesto. She's a very talented visual artist. This is about visual art. Phil and I are uh, Scriveners, and so we wanted somebody... We are not talented visual artists. <laughs> no. I, I'm not even a... Ta- I don't even have a talented eye. I don't even trust myself to recognize um, talent in visual art all the time, though I can tell the difference between art and non-art, as we will explore. <laughs> can you? Yeah, we'll also, yeah, I we'll would see. say that you were a pretty talented visual artist in the affect of your dress. <laughs> I appreciate that. I, I don't know anyone else in the world who would agree with you, but it's, <laughs> nice, it's nice to be seen Probably a certain John way by Probably John mm. Peter Falk, I think, is who yeah. you meant to say that. Or any, or any like, crumpled uh, coat Coffee spill, not mustard. An, not shirt. any crumpled not any, coat, but many. Anybody who uh, <laughs> you know reasonably might have been in the company of Cassavetes or Peter Falk between 1974 and 1986, <laughs> something like that. But I think um, Ben Gazzara wore too many. Uh, what are they called? Ascots. <laughs> like yeah, yeah, like yeah. weird scarves, like theater man scarves. Okay, well, let, me, let me reel this back in. <laughs> ben Gazzara ascot tangent. Okay, hold on. The Stuckists. Your paintings are stuck. You are stuck. 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 Said Tracy Emin, apparently, according to the beginning of this manifesto, which is against conceptualism, hedonism, and the cult of the ego artist. Okay, so Tracy Emin, who, uh, you know, delivered that sort of exhortation about stuckness, I think was in a relationship with this British artist named... Billy Childish. They were together uh, in the early 80s. Yeah. And the story goes that she wanted to go to some gallery show. Uh, I forget the name of the artist, Sarah something. And he didn't want to go. He thought everyone just wants to do coke and look at how great they are. So I'm not going. Her, being his girlfriend, was very angry about this and told him his entire way of life was stuck. His paintings were stuck. He had no vision, basically. So this is one of the first things that I like about this manifesto is that it begins in a bit of super trivial personal spitefulness and vindictiveness, which, you know, can either fester and be poisonous or you can transmute into uh, some sort of creative venture. And in this case, I think that's what happens. So Tracy Ammon accuses childish of stuckness. And then it's actually not childish himself who decides to take that accusation of stuckness and uh, make of it an artistic movement. It's his friend, another figurative painter named Charles Thompson, 
who goes to chi- you know the, childish tells this guy Thompson that Emin had accused him of stuckness. They sort of marinate on that conversation about stuckness for a few days, and then you know, kaboom, you have this stuckist manifesto, and the idea of stuckism is born. The idea of stuckism, yeah, it is born. Inherently a reactionary sentiment, embracing a quote-unquote classic form of art over contemporary. And there would, of course, have been a time when stuckist portraiture and landscape would have been deemed uh, radical, as the Impressionists were. When I first came across the Stuckist Manifesto, when I first started reading about it, um, I was pretty on board. I love bullet points, um, and there's 20 of them, the 20 bullet points of the Stuckist Manifesto, um, and the the utilitarianness of it all. It's like, this is what's bullshit. This is what isn't bullshit. Um, And I I took it as a lighthearted... Like, but but serious critique of art and uh, the art of the time, nineteen ninety nine, early two thousands, and what, in their opinion, had become this kind of like abstruse joke. How conceptual art should have been the most careful in the balance between skill and and uh, and nothingness, or between stuff. And nonsense, if you will. However, in rereading, researching, in rereading the bullet points and researching and coming to a better understanding of the intentions of Stuckism, of its uh, founders, um, I found it lacking in substance and weightiness. And there's a lot more I'll get into about that later. But uh, I found it, you know, kind of disingenuous um, and not understanding of itself. It's un- it, and and to be really weirdly blunt, suffering from the stuckus, suffering from a syndrome I call hating from outside the club, essentially. I think uh, childish was so excited about the idea, um, as later I found out he's you know want to do the obsession with the idea was extremely strong. It was almost like a love affair, like the honeymoon phase of a love affair. And uh, according to him, they wrote the manifesto fifty fifty, um, but it was his friend Charles that you know gave the form to an actual quote unquote movement. So let's let's cut to the chase and. Here's the first thing you need to know about stuckism and what it represents. Artists who don't paint aren't artists. Art that has to be in a gallery to be art isn't art. The stuckist paints pictures because painting pictures is what matters. And those aren't actually, to me, uh, the most appealing points in this 20-point manifesto, but they are perhaps the most characteristic, uh, the ones that can best serve as a, you know, a kind of model uh, for the the asynic doki, if you will, for the the manifesto and the movement as a whole. Um, And the, the two central figures, Childish and Thompson, are both figurative painters, but they're not 
high art gallery figurative painters, I think it's worth saying, or, or they are rather, they're not uh, art school trained, credentialed, high art world figurative painters. And they set themselves very self-consciously in opposition to the art world. I mean, one of the bits of the manifesto is Brit art in being sponsored by the Saatchi's mainstream conservatism in the labor government makes a mockery of its claim to be subversive or uh, avant-garde. And they, um, you know, one of the things, (laughs) they were very good at generating publicity. And one of the things that they would do was have demonstrations outside the Tate Britain over the Turner Prize. Like every year the Turner Prize would be announced. It tended to go to conceptual artists or artists who somehow fell afoul of their um, principles. And so they would they would have a, a, a designation. I think uh, it's worth noting yeah. that they were dressed up as clowns or occasionally wore like a cat. One of them I saw in some pictures wore a catwoman mask. To protest. In as a way of mocking the prize, as a way of you know, sort of poking fun at how seriously it took itself. Right, and they got into a, a spat with uh, Nicholas Serrata, Sir Nicholas Serrata, who is uh, the head of the, the Tate Modern. And actually one of their first touring exhibitions was titled The Resignation of Sir Nicholas Serrata. And they'd, like, sent him a, a letter. Um, God died in Western art sometime during the First World War, and although it was good fun knocking him off his high horse, watching the art brats of today kick him while he's down is somehow less amusing, especially whilst their dealers, like upmarket used car salesmen, stand in the shadows, wearing their Gucci uniforms, clicking their calculators, and whispering into their vulgar cell phones. The work these puppet masters promote we classify as car accident art, for the only audience it attracts is one lured by morbid curiosity." And then Serrata responds. And then in 2005, the Tate is uh, offered 160 paintings that had had a very successful showing, and he declines them because he doesn't think that they're good enough, and they include the Stuckus work. So uh, there's been this sort of ongoing and highly publicized battle between you know the sort of the establishment, which versus the Stuckus, and the establishment in this case is representing sort of more conceptual. Uh, sim- Conceptual art, the, yeah. the Damien Hursts of the world, uh, right. all, all manner of um, fraudulence and poison. Um, <laughs> you know, look, the, Jonathan Jones, the art critic for The Guardian, pens a piece in 2009 titled The Stuckists Are Enemies of Art, which is not only a testament to the um, mental and moral deficiencies of Jonathan Jones. It's also obviously 2009. That's 10 years after the original manifesto. It's also obviously a testament to how successful the manifesto and the movement were as kind of PR and marketing exercises, which is what many of the 20th century manifestos were. You know, if I listen, you know, the, the resonance Phil, that I heard in what you just read a moment ago from the Stuckists, assailing, you know, the kicking around of the tin can of God, you know, for for however many decades after there was something vital or, or meaningful in that act, it just sounds to me exactly like the conversation we had about Dadaism. And it was, you know, sort of the point I was trying to make about Dadaism, which was not to denigrate Dadaism itself, which the Stuckists not incidentally are very inspired and influenced by, it was to say that what came after Stuckism, that Stuckism was a sort of, it was a cul-de-sac and the aftermath of this 
elevation of anti-art was just grift, just the inability to produce art anymore and the elevation of grift embodied in this well, case so, by Damien Hirst right. so to, to the so highest Let's talk levels. about sort of – so Damien Hirst would do things like uh, take a rotting shark and put it in formaldehyde and suspend it in a uh, – he put case. rhinestones on a skull. But not rhinestones, diamonds. Diamonds on yeah. a skull. No, that's an, 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 you know, rhinestones you buy at a 99 cent store. What Hearst did was take incredibly expensive diamonds and put them on a skull. All, I, right. I, just to back it up, just a small bit, I don't know if I agree necessarily with your framing of the stuckists. Uh, one, uh, I don't think that their campaigns have been that successful other than to be a kind of staple, um, uh, like a, a staple cartoonish protest every year that has also come to be gawked at and possibly reported on in yeah, you know, the, the London blogs. Times at one point re- reported on one of their protests and they're like, you know, the really shocking and thing would be if one time the Stuckus actually liked the work by one of the, these these artists. You know, it's sort of, it's a predictable rut at this point, right. yeah. Also, although Damien Hurst is, uh, I don't know him personally, but I have always considered his work to be garbage. Um, and that's just a, a per- personal subjective take, if you will. No, that's subjectively <laughs> true. Um, but, <laughs> uh, but I will say that the Stuckists are <clears throat> this brainchild of Childish, and it's in a particular phase where he is feeling particularly resentful towards his ex-girlfriend. Right, so Chasey Emin is also included in this grift of conceptual artisan fakes right and i just don't necessarily agree that all conceptual art is grift um not that i have to agree with this manifesto to kind of break it down and break it apart but what i am saying is that the stuckus became almost this reactionary like most aging punks i know (laughs) and this is anecdotal have this like absurd reactionary uh, diatribes that they're always going on for whatever the youth is. Like, like the new subversives aren't as subversive as they were subverting the original true subversiveness right. that the punks were. And Billy Childish is very, very reminiscent of that. I mean, the most extreme no. example, he is. Well, let, let, the most let, extreme let, example let's, is let's Johnny sort of, Rotten. Let, let's let some sort of so on the one hand, you have sort of conceptual art, Marcel Duchamp kicking things off with buying a urinal, signing it our mutt, and putting it in an art gallery and calling it Fountain. And then, you know, sort of um, by the time they're writing this, you have Damien Hirst um, putting a shark in formaldehyde, putting a mother and a calf in a ca- – two cows in formaldehyde, putting and, sheep and in formaldehyde. selling immediately right. – uh, for you know, I think the the skull, for instance, is what's the highest sold art object right. at, at its time. It's tens of millions of dollars. I forget the exact figure. Right. And so you have that that sort of thing where the concept is really integral to the artwork itself, right? Where it's you know, if you look at sort of you know, um, it, it's, 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 it's not trying it's to impress no, you, but there's it, no longer even a concept. What Duchamp was doing was conceptual yeah. because it had an actual frame of reference. There right. was an actual 
uh, art establishment art world with its rules that he was in some direct manner engaging with. It wasn't uh, something that he could immediately put on the market. You know, it, because it was conceptual, it needed to be reckoned with as a concept. Hearst isn't conceptual. It's a commodity. He produces commodities. Paintings and figurative paintings are the original commodity. Like the original literal definition of pay me money and I will give you this piece of artwork. I mean, no, that no, that's, is... That's, that's uh, just not true, first of all. How is that, that not true? Every, you look at every baby Jesus in, in, uh, in Renaissance art, and that will, they, most of them will have the face of the patron that commissioned the piece okay, from but, the quote-unquote master. Uh, that's a specific lineage of painting, but the, I, I'm not trying to make a point about whether or not commercial transactions uh, like, are... Uh, inimical to art or something. I don't believe that. My point is not that Damien Hirst makes money, therefore Damien Hirst is not an artist. My point is that the objects that Damien Hirst is producing um, are not conceptual, right? And I, I want to I come back to this idea of subversiveness for its own sake for a moment. I don't think that's what's going on here. I think, like, if you're staying with this original manifesto for a second... And taking this original 1999 20-point manifesto seriously, granted its origins in this maybe vindictiveness, childish feels towards his ex-girlfriend, which I'm not excusing on a personal moral level, granting that. If you take the manifesto, though, for a statement about art, not the protests that go on for another 20 years afterwards Mm -hmm. after it turns into its own kind of racket. But this is a statement about art. It's not just about reaction. It's not just about subversiveness. It's about locating the essence of being human and insisting that art that denigrates the attempt to locate the essence of being human in clever commodity games or in, uh, in, in these kind of nihilistic tricks – doesn't deserve to be called art. That That is not just about subversiveness. Right. That's about an insistence and an attempt to, to, to say that either art uh, – either, either the art – either there's a human experience worth communicating that the art is trying to communicate. Right. I, I have a nice bit from this stuff. It's actually yeah. specifically on Damien Hirst. Art, they wrote, to have value, must have meaning, and the first person to experience this is its creator. That is why an artist such as Vincent van Gogh could endure hardships of poverty and obscurity. It is inconceivable, on the other hand, that anyone would spend 20 years pickling sheep for the sheer love of it. This is because the primary motivation of such work is not its intrinsic worth, but its employment as a commodity and for the celebrity status it brings its manufacturer. And I think that maybe gets at... There's a... Commodity aspect to all of this, but for them, the primary weight is going to be on that sort of intrinsic meaning that the creator is trying to struggle into existence rather than trying to fit something within a art world that is heavily influenced by the market. Mr. Bushmiller, the New York Times has called your work an expedition to the far contours of an evolving techno-culture. With that in mind, where do you see art headed in the 21st century? Art who? 
<laughs> no, really, that's such a stupid question. Why don't you ask me something relevant? Ask me how much money I have in the bank. <laughs> I just disagree that they're... So when I say subversive, I don't think they're doing this, the Stuckists did right. this for subversive's sake. I think that it, it is, in essence, a reactionary manifesto mm -hmm. because they are comparing their own subversiveness to the subversiveness of conceptual artists. Right. And they are using the most buffoonish of characters in the obsessively commodified art world in order to hold up as an example of all of these artists. Yeah, but they don't right. pluck so, that guy because of his buffoonishness. They pluck that guy because well, he's the biggest artist in the okay, world. But let me so just the, say something about pickling sheep. is also the one who the art world prizes most highly. Sure, but let's look at someone at the time who was not as like lauded but was also definitely on the scene, uh, And Gordon Mata Clark. And so, and the, uh, and architects, right? So that's conceptual. So maybe he's not pickling sheep, but he is spending his entire life and decades of his life cutting strategic holes <laughs> in his walls and in, uh, uh, south uh, dilapidated buildings in the South Bronx. And that is intensely conceptual. It has nothing to do with painting. It has everything to do with perspective. Um, and, and uh, yet Alex says this as we sit in front of a, <laughs> a wall that has a hole torn through it. I believe by – did you help with this, Jake? I built no. this wall. You didn't build this wall. <laughs> well, you I built that wall. Yeah, there's I, two I walls build... with two holes. All right, but so, yeah. but let's talk about – so there's the art that they make, right, which is um, – Figurative Child paint. Yeah, Billy Childish is – imagine like a happier Edvard Munch. Fauvist sort yeah. of style. And uh, Thompson is kind of – feels like a descendant of Chagall in a way if you look at his stuff. Um, and – also yeah, like him and, him and Joe, Joe Machine definitely yeah. are more on that side. Joe and, Machine's another stuckest guy, right? But and they're but pleasant. They're like, I, he's I, actually I, pleasant is in the world. I mean, Joe Machine yeah. stuff is right. It's, well done, and it's he's not, actually it's talented. well done. It's also you know quite brutal. Uh, Joe Machine stuff is can be quite brutal with scenes of violence and kind of. That's the other thing. All the stuckists, including Billy Childish, sort of. Uh, fashion themselves after a working man's painter. Like Billy Childish has said, I go to the docks, I paint what I see, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. He's earned the right to say yeah. that. Well, that's debatable. <laughs> no, um, no, no. All right, so let's, let's, let's go through the manifesto. Hold on one so, second. Let, yeah. me, let me read one point that from the manifesto before we sort of go through it um, top to bottom that I think really gets at what I was saying a moment ago about what – I think the essence of this is beyond the kind of provocative, down with conceptual art stuff. And this is point 16. The stuckist gives up the laborious task of playing games of novelty, shock, and gimmick. The stuckist neither looks backwards nor forwards, but is engaged with the study of the human condition. The stuckist's champion process over cleverness, realism over abstraction, content over void, humor over wittiness, and painting over smugness. Now, I, I think every single word of that is true, even the ones that aren't true. And I, this is the only 
manifesto. Actually, maybe uh, the Zamyatin and the O'Hara person is a manifesto I would endorse as well. But I endorse all of this, including the fact that, um, you know, artists who don't paint aren't artists. Not because I think sculpture doesn't count as art, but because I think... Well, there are sculptors who, who like, uh, I think it was some art critic said of Jeff Koons that he couldn't, he couldn't carve his own name into a tree. Yeah, and certainly not all sculptors are art. Who is this? Enid? It's supposed to be Don Moss. <laughs> and what was your reason for choosing him as your subject? I don't know. I just like Don Knotts. Interesting. Well, what do we have here, Margaret? It's a tampon in a teacup. <laughs> I can see that. Now, what can you tell us about it? First of all, what kind of sculpture is this? It's a found object. That's where an artist takes an ordinary object and places it in artistic context, and thus it becomes art. I'm just saying that the essence of this, the essence of this is uh, true in the deepest sense. And that working man thing you were talking about a second ago is not just like the British class obsession that childish is... Uh, you know, invested in being, uh, you know, kind of British working class guy because Childish is a dandy, uh, a bizarre, eccentric, artistic, poet, dandy who's dilettante. also uh, you say dilettante. There's another word that dilettante is uh, a word that maybe people who are afraid of failure use. And the other really important moral point in the Stuckist Manifesto is that feel of, fear of failure is for the credentialed art world types. Damien Hurst will never fail because he doesn't make art. But Childish is something else. In his punk band, The Milkshakes, in his poetry, in his art, he's a glorious amateur. And I say all glory to the glorious amateur. And yet when he... risks something. And yet when he constantly, over and over again, as though it's a rehearsed bit, which you can watch from 1997, 1999, 2007, 2011, 2012. He says his cute bit, his novelty, his gimmick bit about how amateur actually in the Latin means like to love. And although he is quoted as saying, well, I'm not actually like a real amateur, but I, I say it in the sense that um, amateur is to love. And so I'm not, uh, you know, I'm not doing it for art. What, uh, I'm not doing it for money. Basically, so he, although prestige. he wants, yeah, but he is because although he wants to be like uh, between you and me, wink, nudge me, you and the interviewer, I'm like the real guy. I'm, I'm not really an amateur, but I, I throw my oar in with the amateurs. So do you consider yourself to be an amateur artist? Yeah. Amateur, the meaning of amateur is to do something for the love of it. Yeah. And of course, I'm not really an amateur, but it, it's a way of you having a lightness of touch by describing yourself as an amateur. Amateurs are the ones who uh, make the uh, real breakthroughs. Because they're the true meaning of what yeah. it is to I be think art. I think it's, that's just really cynical. I, think, I don't uh, think it's cynical at all. When you watch him over and over again, it just becomes so clear. The rehearsal, the gimmicks of his own. And, I mean, furthermore, I don't gimmicks. know. What sure, do? we do. But you just said you know, that what a, touched you the most about the manifesto is their disdain, which in my opinion is probably just like the brutish, a brutish version of fear. Their disdain for 
for uh, contemporary art. No, that's not. That's not what I said. It's not the disdain that touches me. No, no, it, that's, it's that's that, it's that the, the stuckist gives up the laborious task of playing games of novelty, shock, and gimmick, and yet... Keep going. Here, What's it say in the next line? The stuckist neither looks backwards nor forwards... But is engaged with the, the study, study of, of the, the human, human condition. condition. Yeah. And I am engaged it's in the, the study of the human the condition of all loss of principle taking. by this Billy Childish as I watched him over the decades. I don't know. You, you could hang it all. On, I mean, like, every every Billy Childish is a hypocrite. He's cynical. Yeah, but then he well, he Picasso ca- was a wife beater. I mean, I don't know. No, 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 no. It's a little. It's a lot different because he even catches himself by saying, "Oh, you know, but I, you know, I'm I'm above everything because I am also full of contradictions." Oh, so you basically have no. So it's not the same as Picasso's a wife beater. So I can't see his art. It's this man has has crafted a world in which he has no accountability to his own principles whatsoever. Too cynical. That's not cynical. I leave it to you, dear listener. Dear listener. (laughs) All I can say is... His poetry is fantastic. Your choice is... Wild Billy Childish or Damien Hirst. It's one or the no, other. it is not one or the other. It's one or the other. It is Wild Billy Childish or it's Tracy Emin. One thing he did say about painting okay, that I really like. Okay, I accept that. One thing he did say about painting that I really... That, and that's a harder choice, right? That is a harder choice. But one thing he said about painting that I really liked was uh, he says something like, it's not... Um, it's not... Oh, yeah, I have it written here. The idea of... It's not the idea of painting... Oh, the idea is painting and not having ideas about painting. Yeah, that's it. Mm-hmm. Right, and that's it. That's and that's very thing. in the moment. And that is one of the principles that I like about the Stuckist. The pre- staying in the, the present so, moment. Let's just very quickly just go through. Okay. It's very short. Okay, yeah. All right, there's basic things. Yeah. Stuckism is the quest for authenticity, right? It's not about cleverness. It's about uh, the medium of self-discovery. Yeah. Uh, it proposes a model of art which is holistic, right? It's against – modernism is a school of fragmentation. They're, they um, you know, they, they don't want that. Postmodernism, nihilistic, cleverness. Right. Um, and then the bits that you read about you, know, you need to be a painter. Uh, art that has to be in a gallery to be art is an art. Um, and they're against you know, sort of museums and conceptual art. That art is about giving form to a shared conceptual experience, right? Or, or a sh- it <clears throat> is about giving form to a private experience that can then be shared and communicated, right? Um, What's the one of the worlds within art? Oh, that's a good one. That's yeah. a really good one. So this is, uh, I think, a key point from the manifesto. Painting is mysterious. It creates worlds within worlds giving access to the unseen psychological realities that we inhabit. The results are radically different from the materials employed. An an existing object, for example a dead sheep, blocks access to the inner world and can only remain part of the physical world it inhabits, be it moorland or gallery. Ready-made art is a polemic of materialism. And I, I think that the... The point that's being made – actually, let me just continue to the next point and and that sort of completes this this idea. The next point is postmodernism in its adolescent attempt to ape the clever and witty in modern art has shown itself to be lost in a cul-de-sac of idiocy. What was once a searching and provocative process as Dadaism has given way to trite cleverness for commercial exploitation. The stuckest calls for an art that is alive with all aspects of human experience, dares to communicate its ideas in primeval pigment, 
and possibly experiences itself as not at all clever. I find that an essentially unimprovable sentiment in a few different ways. For one, I think it it's acknowledges the heart of the manifesto. For one, it acknowledges that the problem was not modernist experimentation. The problem was that modernist experimentation, even of the most aggressive and absurdist variety in, say, Dadaism, created a legacy in which you could, the joke never ended, as I've said before. So once, once Duchamp puts the urinal in the gallery... The problem is that he creates a kind of occult relationship between art and viewer of art and curator of art or an esoteric relationship that destroys the common ability to recognize art as a something a, a – a mutually agreed upon uh, as, as a universal object, as an object of universal experience and of universal recognition. So in other words, the first time the urinal goes in the gallery, it is responding to art. It's responding to the conventions of art. So whereas it's maybe shocking, like Stravinsky's Rites of Spring. But now that the art, urinal art is setting, convention. But now that the urinal is convention, it's created a situation where any urinal anywhere can be art. Where anything at any time can be art if 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 the forces of institutional art declare it so. Because what ends up happening with the purely conceptual is that it gets sucked into the most powerful forces around it, which are the brokers, and it becomes a pure commodity transaction. It doesn't the problem with conceptual art is not that it's purely conceptual. The problem with conceptual art is that it's purely material. It's purely instrumentalized. And that's, that's the negative pure. part. I, I don't know if you can hold say on, hold purely. On, hold on. Okay. That's the negative part. The positive thing that they're saying, which is you know the obverse of that, is that there is something human experience. They are affirming that there is human experience and that one should dare to communicate it in primeval pigment – if in nothing else. And you could call that sentimental, you could call that precious, but without some basic affirmation along those lines, without some basic affirmation that there is some shared experience we can call human, and that art that doesn't try to communicate, in other words, art that renders itself deliberately unintelligible, because what is art that ignores the human experience but deliberately unintelligible art that renders itself deliberately unintelligible submits itself as an instrument to, uh, you know, essentially money capitalism. brokers, gallery brokers, capitalism in the, in the, or brands. I mean, what we experience okay. now is brands right, but brokering let's... in concept and that concept creating it's uh, like remaking itself in art. I interviewed Martin Scarelli, and he, uh, almost making fun of conceptual art, had one of his uh, pills in a in a in a box, and 
he said, uh, you know, pharmaceutical engineers are the next or the newest artists. This was also the same show that mm. um, uh, Yiannopoulos covered himself in pig's blood and ran around with right. the rabble guys. Right. Hi, I'm Martin Shkreli, and I'm one of the contributing artists here tonight. Um, I contributed this piece. I call it Pill 2016. And uh, the point of the art is that uh, this pill represents, uh, to me, the purity and the uh, pricelessness of life. The same way a painter's brush paints with vibrant blues and reds, chemists paint with hydrogens and carbons and other atoms to form uh, amazing new medicines. So I'm happy to be here and supporting conservative movement here in New York City. But, but there's another way to look at it, which is, you know, again, Arthur Danto makes this point that um, you know, let's imagine a group of flowers, right? I have a friend who, like, has studied the Japanese art of, like, flower arranging, and she puts together these really beautiful groupings of flowers. You can imagine one which is sort of clearly art, right, and tend to convey beauty. Another sort of identical group of flowers that just happen to grew that way or whatever. Um, and the question that, like, an example like that brings up or, like, sort of, you know, Duchamp's urinal and what makes that art and not is it's not simply the placing it in a gallery, right? But that the theories, or not even theories, but interpretations and responses, the human responses that we bring to a work of art are a part of the work itself, right? And there, what, he, what he writes is, I, I shall think of interpretations as functions which transform material objects into works of art. Interpretation is, in effect, the lever with which an object is lifted out of the real world and into the art world, where it becomes vested in often unexpected raiment. Only in relationship to an interpretation is a material object in artwork. And so the, the work that conceptual art is doing in that sense is, is, is exploring the, the nature of that relationship, Right, and actually vesting a lot of power in the observer themselves. Um, and I would say the the thing that I have an issue with in terms of the Stuckist Manifesto is I I like it, I enjoy it, and an artist who is working with those principles I have nothing against, but it seems limited. And and you know if you sort of go through, like, you know what is the purpose of art? You know sort of different theories of it. Right. So for the Greeks it was, um, beauty and mimesis. Right. So you have like you know, they would compliment somebody by saying that, you know, he painted grapes and people thought they could eat them, you know, and then they realized that they were actually painted. Um, Mimesis is just imitation. Right, right. And like the sort of, you pick a beautiful object and you try and represent it as perfectly as possible. And the more perfect the representation, the, you know, the better you're doing, right? And then... Um, you know, and we have sort of the development of perspective and sort of you can tell a history of art that is progressive in terms of the development of techniques and craft that enables you to more closely sort of match reality, right? And then that starts to break down when you get to post-impressionism. And, and you know, it talks about sort of when Matisse came out with a woman with a green stripe, his wife with a sort of green stripe across her nose, what are we to make of this, Right. Matisse can paint. They know that he has a technical skill to do something medic. He's clearly not doing it. And Croce comes up with this sort of expressive theory of art, which is very similar to what the Stuckists are saying is art, which is you're trying to communicate your, your feelings about the world and 
you know, sort of let somebody into a an interior, internal, yeah, yeah, an interior experience, right? Which you know works for some things. You can look at like Giacometti and feel like that's what he's doing. Um, it's a little harder when you're looking at like uh, the Cubist paintings of Picasso and Brock and being like, oh, this is communicating their feelings about you know guitars. Um, something else seems to be going on. And I think that the, the purely expressive interior psychology, it's just, it's just too limiting a conception of what art can be and even what, what is sort of the full expressive range of, of, of human communication that art is enabling. It's a manifesto, so of course it's limiting. But <laughs> I it, think... the, po- the point of the manifesto is to generate momentum in a particular direction not to prescribe all action for the end of time particularly a manifesto like this and what this manifesto is doing in addition to exposing lies which is always valuable if it only exposed lies it would be worth it but what it's also doing is suggesting a minimum criteria for art Right, it's not pres- if you a, take a minimum the- criteria dictated by a few people who were. Uh, yeah, so oh, let me let me address that because that's an important point. Of course they, of course they don't like postmodernism. I mean, anyway. Let me address the the few people. You say, of course, they don't like postmodernism, like they're being the elitists. But the point is, their minimum criteria by establishing a minimum criteria. They're saying there has to be a universal element to art. That's what they're saying. The insistence on painting is the only real art. If you take these as literal prescriptions, of course they're limiting, of course they're maximalist, of course there are other kinds of art you could create that don't work within these definitions. But don't take the, the prescriptive element of it. Take the minimum criteria element. What the minimum criteria element does is establish a shared vision of art rooted in universal human experience that allows all people anywhere to participate in it, which is exactly the opposite of what the conceptual interpretive model of art taken to its extremes does. This is the same move that much much of postmodernism makes, which is by saying that something is infinitely or purely the product of interpretation rather than the much more obvious or the more sort of intuitive uh, acknowledgement that art, literature, visual art exists as some shared experience between object and interpreter and that there has to be a definite object for the interpreter to have a foothold to create that meaning. What conceptual art does by eliminating everything but the interpreter is to cede all art to a group of power brokers who I can assure you are not the people with the greatest love of art or the people with the best taste or the greatest love of humanity or even the most interesting people at the party or the ones with the coolest clothes. They're just the ones who know how to work this particular racket the most efficiently. When you say... That it's what about all the interpretation. that created when the greatest pieces of art of all time? Let me just finish this. When you say that it's all interpretation, when you say that it's all interpretation, when you're not democratizing says? it. Well, this is what Phil just talked no, no, about. No, no, that the interpretation is an essential part of it. Okay, that's how it starts. 
But that acknowledgement that the interpretation is an essential part of it leads in late conceptual art, much of the later part of the 20th century through the 21st century, leads to a it's only interpretation. Anything can be art. Anything the sure. artist and Anything the gallery owner to declares. Anything to its ultimate conclusion will eventually be so deconstructed that it loses all meaning. But when you say universal art, I think you are – and I think, I think you are coming from a standpoint that postmodernists obviously – like one of their defining principles is that there is no universal – Right. standard of anything what now does that whether, lead to well what whether or not leads that to damien hurst whether or not that leads to damien hurst well, that or is many, what yeah to. is damien my question let is, me, is damien let me, hurst let me read something as marx might say you can be an abstractionist in the morning a photorealist in the afternoon a minimal minimalist in the evening or you can cut out paper dolls or do what you damn please the age of pluralism is upon us it does not matter any longer what you do which is what pluralism means when one direction is as good as another direction, there is no concept of direction any longer to apply. Decoration, self-expression, entertainment are, of course, abiding human needs. There will always be a service for art to perform, if artists are content with that. Freedom ends in its own fulfillment. A subservient art has always been with us. The institutions of the art world, galleries, collectors, exhibitions, journalism, which are predicated upon history and hence marking what is new, will bit by bit wither away. How happy happiness will make us is difficult to foretell. But just think of the difference the rage for gourmet cooking has made in common American life. On the other hand, it has been an immense privilege to have lived in history. I want to. That's very good. It is very. <laughs> I want to say a few things about the democratization of art. Some Danto is the end of art. <clears throat> in a lot of ways, this very small sampling of unsuccessful British painters, which is unsuccessful in a very monetary monetary sense, not that they were not good. I, I like a lot of the paintings by the Stuckists quite a bit. Um, but this idea that they would somehow define only in contrast to Damien Hirst, again, the most cartoonish and buffoonish example of conceptual art, um, they would define themselves in direct opposition to that in order to... The biggest artist in the world, though. You're you're leaving out that this guy but what I'm also, is but not what you're marginalia. Leaving, okay. He's the biggest artist. But in what the you're world. also leaving out is that the experience and the interpretation, when you look at things like architecture and space, is an art form that is all to the interpreter's experience. And that is designed specifically. Architecture is an art form that takes that not only is about the process and about the intent and about the skill, but it is also very much for the direct purpose of the experience of the interpreter or the audience that enters the space. And now conceptual art takes those, that kind of principle of architecture and the principle of experience and the principle of um, uh, any amount of worlds that are possible from painting, and it puts it together and there are so many artists so that and they say they want to say Damien Hirst and you want to say Damien Hirst but the entire manifesto is based off of opposition to Tracy Emin which Maybe. I want to I keep wanting to say Emin and I think it falls short by making it so absolute and not allowing the manifesto to have its very clear fallibility and and hypocrisy and acknowledging that and acknowledging what is in fact wrong with the only people that are 
loud critics of the commodified conceptual art world. The only people that you allow to be these critics are these people that speak in absolutes that date themselves and make themselves entirely irrelevant to the modern conversation. It doesn't feel irrelevant to me at all. But look, this is a manifesto. I think some of what you're describing are the maybe the limitations or the, the flaws of the manifesto as a form. It's strident. It's absolutist. It's, you know, it doesn't do subtlety. But when you talk about architecture, I feel like you're making my point. Um, the, the, the Damien Hurst equivalent in architecture is to take a deflated balloon and sell it as a mansion for $40 zillion, right? Architecture, more, far more than, than most or any perhaps other artistic medium, architecture has very strict conventions. A house is something with doors and a window that you can live inside of. And what about... And so that's the shared Okay, experience. my question is this. What about... Uh, I, I don't know how to pronounce her name. Uh, and where architecture is... What about is, Kasuma? I don't... The woman who makes the, the mirrored kind of infinite universes and starry nights that you can walk through and walk into. It's a, and great, that, it's a great question. I don't know Kazuma particularly, but what I would say is this illustrates the point. This illustrates the point perfectly. I think are, that you are, need you, skill. No, no, you're absolutely right. But I just want to add one other dimension. You have skill and concept, like with the mirrors, right? But a moment ago, we were also talking about the experience of the person entering the place. I'm telling you that it's not infinitely malleable. And if the person living inside the architecture is... If you're living inside brutalist architecture and it makes you despondent then maybe that's bad architecture. Maybe that's not... Maybe there is actually a purpose that architecture might aspire to. And that insofar as there is a shared experience between... Or a, a common, synth, a synthesized experience where a viewer, liver interacts with the art, that both sides have to be taken into account. And in the same way that brutalist architecture inspires despondence, but perhaps... Some brilliant, inventive, uh, I don't know Kasumi particularly, but some brilliant, inventive new architect who introduces new forms of light and mirror actually enlarges the human experience. And that that's good not only because their buildings as art objects are good, but because they produce a greater range of Well, she's installation art, but yeah, to your point. But, but that, 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 that would make it good. But that by the same measure, what does... Most, I'm not talking all conceptual art. I don't even know exactly what counts as conceptual art and what doesn't. I'm not, but I'm saying most of what has dominated art, right? The, the sort of commodification of art and the aristocraticization of art, where there's an art aristocracy that has to, you don't know if it's but art it or not. Always until they deem it, art. it has always been thus. It has always been thus. No, but. But it hasn't always relied on a kind of uh, hyper clever concealing of the nature of art. It hasn't always done that. The, the patronage model produced art that wasn't only wasn't only recognizable as art to the noble lords. Right. The, the, this is not. This is not a say we should go back to to feudal models of art. I'm just saying when you abandoned in, you'd when make you, a great Medici. When yeah. you abandon entirely the idea that things have 
some that there's some nature I, to I think the what thing. we're talking about is it you being rooted it in to, skill. You ban it's 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 skill and and purpose. And when you and abandon that condition. entirely, you don't yeah, but the who, nature who purpose other is the than human da- Damien Hurst and who other than the b- absurd kind of like drooling Pavlovian dogs of every kind of skill and labor from art to literature, from like people uh, publishing books of, of penny, penny dreadfuls for the consumption of housewives who had a flair for the wanting to read gothic vampire romance novels like i mean entertainment. no no sure it's entertainment but like the, the publishers purpose. that do that the people that stand in their gucci suits trying to deal art on cell phones these are and will always be the villains and the primped up uh dogs that will like tear apart so what true art is. No, so no, it's not about okay. the people in Gucci suits. But it what I, they don't but matter, what I'm actually. saying is the the what I like about the Stuckist Manifesto is their relationship between the human condition, spirituality, and skill. But what the you can call it my uh, uh, objection to the form, but the form being so rooted in like a clear resentment that is not fully thought out makes it childish and it makes it the opposite of democratizing without acknowledging any kind of it's not about hypocrisy it's about acknowledging nuances and complexity with postmodernism at the end of the day the stuckus and the ridiculous damien hursts of the world and that conversation robs people of just a multitude of art that has really thrived and is important, beautiful, profound, whatever you want to say, that exists in structure, in gallery. You know, you have things that incorporate sound and light and can't be denied that they're art and they exist within a structure and they kind of bend that structure and utilizing all the viewers senses envelops them in a world and tries to like communicate that way. I don't think you can deny that therein lies the opportunity for real exceptional um, communication and, and exceptional indescribable worlds like the stuckest like many worlds within worlds um but just in three dimension i'll say one thing that i like is that they pair the the manifestos with like suggestions of like tips um artists to study and then like craft tips like how to paint you know with this which does speak to a democratizing impulse like you can do this too it's gonna take hard work don't get fooled by the establishment. Learn your craft and then communicate something. I'll say that we should probably move on. Mm. just want to say how I often wonder whether this is only writing in an age in which we run towards deception through infallible equations and conformity machines. And that is from Julio Cortázar's ah. Hopscotch, which is a great experimental book that demands the reader come to it with a lot of 
theory. And that is our, I like that the uh, manifesto is actually about art and the work of art is actually a book. You guys are being pretty conceptual here. Um, I'm going to interpret this as my way to exit stage left and let you guys discuss our manifesto's piece of art. Yes. Thank you, Alex. Thanks, Alex. So we've got The Pursuer by Julio Cortázar, Argentine son of a diplomat, actually born in Belgium in 1914, Um, and his father left when he was six, Uh, was sickly, read a lot. Uh, He said, uh, I spent my childhood in a haze full of goblins and elves with a sense of space and time that was different from everybody else's. Uh, Briefly, he was a professor of French literature, uh, forced out by the... uh, Peronis in 1946, moved to France, and then lived there for the rest of his life. He's considered one of the great, I mean, just one of the world's great short story writers, really important sort of Latin American boom author, uh, and known for magical realism and sort of uh, experimental novels. The story that we're uh, focusing on today is not is one of his realist stories, um, and it is about a character uh, who is fairly obviously Charlie Parker, um, and he doesn't really make much of a much of an attempt to to hide that. And it's told from the perspective. It, it's actually actually funny. And there's a um, these classes that he gave in Berkeley where he was um, uh, talking about literature, and they've been collected in a, a really great book. Um, and he's talking about that story. And the main character is uh, Johnny Carter uh, in the story, but he accidentally will refer to him as Johnny Parker occasionally. Right. <laughs> um, uh, so if, not not a attempt to uh, hide that he's a Charlie Parker stand-in. It's, right. Uh, he's it's obviously obvious. Charlie Parker. Yeah. Um, and, you know, Charlie Parker was one of the sort of key – Founders of, of of bebop, right? Which He's is the bop guy. I would yeah, say, right? Um, which is sort of emerged out of swing. I feel like there's a nice transition because we talked about swing music when we were talking about Albert Murray, and now uh, you know here's a story about bebop, which basically you'd have swing musicians who would after hours go to go in like these jam sessions. Most famous one at Minton's Playhouse, and they'd sort of try and one up each other, and they'd kind of screw around with each other by. Um, doing like complicated chord changes or chord progressions, uh, playing tunes really fast, whatever, doing things that would make it so that if you didn't have a lot of music theory and a lot of sort of virtuosic talent, you couldn't keep up. And actually Charlie Parker, when he went to one of these sessions, famously got kicked out of the session because he couldn't hang. And he went home and he practiced 16 hours a day until he became just amazing. Um, And so, uh, you know, bebop is this sort of, tends to have like complex rhythms, um, you know, instead of the sort of more even, predictable kind of swing melody that uses repetition is more lyrical and smooth. Uh, uh, bebop would be uh, kind of like limited melodic cues, uh, limited uh, repetition, more impro- improvisational phrases, kind of complex, angular, asymmetrical music. And so whereas swing was focused on dance music, right? 
and it was the sort of quintessential thing for swing was the band. Um, bebop was more intellectual, and it was very much about uh, the the individual virtuoso. It's jazz is high modernism, right? So exactly, it's, it is the the high modernist uh, jazz form that is yeah about individual virtuosity. It's self consciously art. <laughs> Right. And um, and also like even the style, you know, I remember seeing Sonny Rollins talking about uh, one of the things that he liked about Charlie Parker. And Parker was a drug addict and a drunk and had this, you know, really wild kind of sad life in many ways and, and, and dysfunctional. But he was very intellectual. Would he sort of play very dignified? He didn't kind of ham it up as an entertainer. Um, and so he represented for some of the younger artists a different model of – even though sort of in his private life he was a, a kind of train wreck, in the way that he performed and conducted himself on stage, he sort of demanded dignity and intellectual respect uh, and those sorts of things. That, yeah, rigorousness to it. It wasn't mm – -hmm. uh, was not uh, lighthearted entertainment. It was uh, serious – artistic pursuit right right um and uh so the story starts with it's told by bruno who is sort of like johnny carter uh you know it's the charlie parker figure johnny carter's biographer right and he's like has kind of carved out a niche for himself as the preeminent interpreter of the preeminent bebop musician, right? And he's friends with Johnny Carter and he meets up with him in Paris where Carter's, you know, doing these sessions. Uh, he's lost his saxophone because he's always, you know, he's always losing his saxophone. He's always uh, pawning it for drugs or getting mad and destroying something. Uh, and the story consists of a lot of these long conversations with Bruno and Johnny Carter as he's trying to work through what Johnny Carter is trying to do with his art. Um, and Bruno has this very kind of like um, analytical sort of style to him and approach. And then Johnny Carter uh, is sort of always um, – searching for this thing that he can't articulate in words that he's trying to get across in his music that feels to, you know, is maybe coming across on a different register, right? Some kind of transcendent, epiphanic um, moment where it all connects or, or where it all reveals itself, um, and like the metaphysical dimension crystallizes uh and and uh yeah but he's also the uh johnny carter character is um you know a mess he's a junkie he's uh he's a junkie he's bad to the people around him but he is deep deep in in this search of this um, this kind of transcendent thing that he is 
approaching through music but contemplating all the time even when he's not playing the music especially when he's on the metro in paris and um and the structure of the story is like carter loses the the horn that and then it's like can he be kept in paris and uh because Bruno has to write this biography of him and, and it's like through this sort of demimonde that they're in and these people around Carter, his friends and lovers, et cetera. Who are like propping him up but also right. sort of feeding off of him. Yeah, and the, the great sort of motif is who's getting the dope for him. Right. So Bruno is always trying to suss out like who's actually scoring the heroin for him but it's not out of – altruistic concern right it's because he wants to know who's the source of dope because he has his own th- he has to finish this book and he's trying to to sort of get a read on the situation he's not a an evil guy he doesn't want to see this guy suffer for the sake of suffering but they're all kind of using him and uh, the only other thing i would add to your initial description of bruno is that he's also he's trying to or he's sort of trying to figure out and also tormented by the relationship between Carter's musical abilities uh, and obvious talents and gifts and Carter himself. Like, does this guy even know what he has? Uh, and, you know, he's the, – the racism is he, like, calls him a monkey at various points and he's a primitive and uh, so – Bruno's in this position where as, – As the story goes along, at first, when you first start out, you sort of – you're kind of on the side of Bruno. Right, he's like the guy right. who's got it together. He's writing this book. He's very, very smart. The way that he writes about jazz is really beautiful at times. And Carter is an asshole and a mess and a junkie. That's right. And he's talking crazy talk a lot of the time. So you're like – you're sort of on the side of Bruno and he's got to mind this this – Guy, and then as the story progresses, you and it's really well. I mean, Cortázar is an amazing writer, but like it's very well but subtly done. Like you sort of realize there's something deeply screwed up, not just with with Bruno and the way that he's treating um, Johnny Carter, but also even with his own approach to the music, right? And that you know, there's there's a there's a part later in the book. Uh, sorry, later in the story. It's a long story um, where he's having this, uh, you know, disagreement because Johnny reads his book, uh, Bruno's book about him, and uh, and he starts saying like there are things that you you know you left out of it, um, and uh, he says a man can't say anything right away. You translate it into your filthy language. So the title in Spanish is. El Persiguidor, which uh, is ambiguous. It can mean the pursuer, which is how it's translated into English, but it can also mean the persecutor. Hmm. Um, And so uh, that sort of sense of it, in particular the way that there's this sort of parasitic relationship of the very analytical Western uh, sort of rationalist approach. The critic. The critic to Johnny becomes sort of a part of the torture that Johnny is going through as an artist. Say a little bit more about what it is that Johnny feels Bruno has left out, though. 
what has he not included in the biography? Deliberately, we find out. Well, he hasn't included what a wreck Johnny is. That's one thing, right? He hasn't incorporated into the whole life. Um, I mean, so that's a deliberate decision that he makes. Though, yeah, that he, you know, and I think Johnny's fr- what he says at some point is like. The man is not there. It's it's something along like you've left out actually the character of me, you know, something along those lines. But uh, but Bruno's done that. You, I think, what comes across. You you made a very astute point about the structure and the, this turn that occurs, which I hadn't even fully processed. But yeah, that's exactly how you read it. You come into the story through Bruno, who's like, all right. What's what's going on with the junkie this time? Right, you know, like, how, how am I going to help this guy out? And uh, and Johnny is talking like you know, like he's often like the junkie mist, like you know, he's like slurring profundity, you know, what he thinks are profundities, and then gradually that relationship sort of reverses. You come to understand actually, no, Johnny's onto something profound, right. He is a mess. It's not that he's not a mess and a junkie. He's all those things. He's also into something really deep and profound. And Bruno is not just trying to help him. He's also sort of terrified of that and resentful of it because it's outside of his control. It's outside of his critical faculties. There's something that he can't understand, which he's both drawn to and and – I don't know if resentful is the right word, but something like resentful. And the best of. he can do is translate it into his filthy language. Yeah. yeah. The, um, uh, there's, a, there's a bit where he says, Johnny's art is neither a substitute nor a finished thing. He preferred desire rather than pleasure, and it hung him up because desire necessitated his advancing, experimenting, denying in advance the easy rushing around of traditional jazz. This jazz cuts across all easy eroticism, all Wagnerian romanticism, so to speak, to settle firmly into what seems to be a very loose level where the music stands in absolute liberty, as when painting got away from the representational. It stayed clear by not being more than painting. But then... Being master of music not designed to facilitate orgasms or nostalgia of a music which I should like to call metaphysical, Johnny seems to use that to explore himself, to bite into the reality that escapes every day. Johnny doesn't move in a world of abstractions like we do. The reason for his music, that incredible music I've listened to tonight, has nothing to do with abstractions. Or so he would like to think, (laughs) right? You know, it has nothing to do with abstractions. I deal in abstractions, which... Mm -hmm through which this sort of uh, primitive effusion can be properly contextualized. And um, Initially in the story, he's like, you know, Johnny's the mouth and I'm the ear. So it's not to say Johnny's the mouth and I'm the, you know, like the ass end of something. Yeah, it's a great passage. (laughs) Actually, I have that one bookmark. Yeah, but it's – But then uh, later, like later after having compared himself to the asshole, right, later he comes as – decision that like he's more important than the artist because the artist doesn't know what he's doing and you need the critic to it's funny there are all these sort of resonances with our previous conversation so anatole Brard, who i've mentioned a number of times one of my favorite writers and who was passing for white most (laughs) with most people most of his adult life um but was from a black family he in his memoir his great memoir kafka was the rage he talks about how 
one of his first assignments for partisan review was he was supposed to they wanted him to write about jazz. Yeah. Now, did they think he was black and he thought that they that he was passing and they like who knows, but whatever, they wanted him to write about jazz whether they thought he was black or white at the time. In the memoir what he recounts is that he didn't want to write about j- Now, this is at a point when he's definitely passing. He's yeah. definitely passing as white when he writes the memoir. And what he writes is that he didn't want to write about jazz because it seemed too primitive, too mm-hmm. much an evocation of a kind of folk art or primitive art. And he was afraid that it would like call into question his own primitivism. Now, this is, mm-hmm. now he phrases it in such a way or it's contextualized in such a way that because he's from the provinces in New Orleans and here he is in New York, he doesn't want to be thought of as provincial but, you know, when you know something about him, you, you see him. And, the, and, of course, the irony here is that, like, Breyard was this highly sophisticated, highly cosmopolitan, uh, primitive is hardly um, what he would bring to mind. But the great biography of Charlie Parker is Stanley Crouch, who uh, was a sort of disciple of Albert Murray's, who we talked about last yeah. week. Crouch writes this, uh, writes this sort of classic um, biography of Parker called Kansas City Lightning, the rise and times of Charlie Parker. And one of the things Crouch says about Parker is that what Parker was doing in a way, you know, when I talk about the high modernism, what Parker was doing in part, Crouch says he was the first guy to play in digital time. Yeah. Like, I was going to bring up the same. He <laughs> improvises with the past, he improvises in the present. With the past, the present, and the future, he's extemporaneously responding to the note that just got played, the note mm-hmm. that's being played at the same moment that he's playing by the other musician, and the note that's about to be played. Yeah. He's not just playing a note that fits into that time sequence. He is improvising new notes all the time. Yeah. And improvising melodies, not yeah. just single notes. He's improvising melodies uh, in this kind of concordance that's unfolding in real time. Yeah. The, 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 this is Ellison, uh, Ralph Ellison on, on Parker. His playing was characterized by velocity, by long continued successions of notes and phrases, by swoops, bleats, echoes, rapidly repeated bebops, I mean rebopped bebops, by mocking mim- mimicry of other jasmine styles, and by interpolations of motifs from extraneous melodies, all of which added up to a dazzling display of wit, satire, burlesque, and pathos. Further, he was an as expert at issuing his improvisations from the dense brushes from the extreme treetops of the harmonic landscape, and there was without doubt as irrepressible a mockery in his personal conduct as in his music. And... That bit that you said about the past, present, and future all being critical is, um, I think, really important. And a lot of this story is about time, actually. Um, yeah. And the passage of time. There's ways in which I, I've never seen any critical stuff on this, but it it reminds me of a lot of the beats in on time in Augustine's Confessions. Mm. But um, one of the first big sort of... Johnny soliloquies, right? Um, that you're not when you're sort of not initially sure whether he's just a junkie talking or uh, whether you're supposed to take this as something profound. Is he tells this story about the metro, and he goes on the metro and he has this sort of experience and basically a daydream, really, on the metro, and he describes it in detail to Bruno, and he asks him like, 
How much time do you think it would take for somebody to go through that experience, all that sort of thought? And, you know, Bruno kind of, like, takes it over, like, thinks it over, and he's like, oh, you know, like, uh, a quarter of an hour, right? And he's like, but it only took two stops on the metro, which is, mm. you know, two minutes. Mm. And it's actually sort of funny in an interview – uh, Quartasar said that like that came from his own personal experience of being on the metro and having a daydream that he felt and having daydreams that he felt should have taken 15 minutes or an hour or whatever. But knowing because of the amount of time it takes to get from station to station that only a short amount of time had passed and that those sort of distractions and daydreams would then filter into the short stories that he was writing. I mean this is also the thing about being high, right? Right. <laughs> is the the metered out steady, continuous, incremental progression of time gets disrupted and it gets disrupted in a way that makes you alive to the fact that you are the one, your consciousness is what's imposing yeah. that metronome, that that's, that's not the nature of time. Time, the nature of time is not the second hand on a clock taking away. Yeah. You know, that's you. It is in my own mind then that I measure time. I must not allow my mind to insist that time is something objective, wrote St. Augustine. And then a millennium later, the French theoretical physicist Bernard – okay, French name? De Espagnat? Yeah, that sounds right. Yeah, I, yeah, I know that. De Espagnat. De Espagnat. <clears throat> in reality and the physicist, <clears throat> knowledge, duration, and the quantum world – what philosophers often call physical or mathematical time, the variable T, which figures in mathematical expression of the elementary laws of physics, is not an element of independent reality. Experienced time has a density of reality which cannot be denied, so it is not absurd to speak, albeit loosely, of it being more real than the first kind. And that, after a fashion, provides reason after the fact for those philosophers who, sometimes implicitly and not fully aware of what they were doing, identify true time with the consciousness human beings have of time. <laughs> I think I understood what you just said. <laughs> sort of skipping around inside of that. But uh, I think I get that. Something about the relative nature of time. Yeah, we, that, that the experience of time has more validity than sort of what we think of as the kind of rationalist right, divided right. up clock time. Right. Um, and the rationalist divided up clock time would be the time between stops on the metro that we know is the same versus seeing time as this right. product of – And this is the thing about the opium meter – Right, is that it's not just wasting away and it is reassuring or – look, this is absolutely not a defense of uh, heroin use. But, uh, but, but the ability to shock yourself out of the uh, delusions – or artifices that you require for day-to-day -day life is very difficult. I mean, this is the whole, this is Proust's great subject, right? And Proust's great subject, not incidentally, is time also. Um, but, the, you know, it, it's easy to see in that, like in that opening scene, when Bruno walks in and Johnny's the one mumbling and a mess and decrepit, but... Somehow Johnny's onto something. Does right. he need the dope to be onto it? I'm not saying that, but he's on the dope and he's onto it. And that's that whole thing, that mess is part of what Bruno has to leave out of the biography. Yeah. 
so that he can complete it, but also so that he can feel himself exerting some sort of mastery over the subject. Right, and rationalizing it and breaking it apart. And I think it's important that Johnny mentions that he had that feeling of time even when he was a kid and started playing. Like when he played music, Mm. he had that sense, and he describes it as stepping on an elevator where the place changes even though you stay the same. Um, And so, you know, there's this sort of intellectualized sense of what Johnny's doing. And then there's, you know, at one point he talks about there's a bit where Johnny plays this. He's like strung out. He needs to be like held up to play. And this is – I'm pretty sure this is based on the recording of uh, Loverman Mm. on the uh, dial recordings. Uh, I'm sure it is because like – after he did that, he like set fire to his hotel room and was running around naked. Mm-hmm. All of which happens in the in the book as well, in the in this story as well. Um, and Johnny wants the thing destroyed, but Bruno listening to it and he understands why Johnny uh, wants it destroyed. Like realizes this is going to be one of the great moments in jazz recorded. Um, and he mentions that during that recording, Johnny had felt the need to take off his shoes and like have his bare feet on the earth at one point, and. Uh, he's like, that's not, you know, it wasn't just him being crazy, that there was some sort of like physical rootedness that was necessary for that recording versus the feeling of, you know, sort of flying for another one when he talks about a a session with Miles. Um, and there's a bit where, uh, why does he need it destroyed? Hmm? Why does he need it destroyed? Johnny? Mm. Um, Bruno describes it as there being technical imperfections, right, Um, that were sort of embarrassing. I don't think – I don't think that's why. Right. Why do you – I mean, why do you think? I wasn't – I don't know. I puzzled over that and I – technical imperfection seems – on, it does. It, there's something off about that. There's a, there's a, there's a bit where, when he announces that that Johnny is a pursuer, right? Uh, you know, he's not hunted by something. Like people see him as like haunted by his art. He's like, no, no, he is the hunter, and his accidents are, you know, the accidents mm. that happen to a hunter in pursuit mm. of prey. Um, and all this is happening. It's sort of like this intense emotional pitch. Like Johnny's child has died. B, right? And he, like, finds out about it. Back in the States. Back in the States. While he's in Paris. Right, while he's in Paris. Um, but, of course, he's strung out, so he, yeah. it doesn't – it's not like they deliver the news to him and, you know, like a sane, sober father, he immediately begins to grieve and make funeral preparations. Because no. he's out of time. Yeah. He's out of joint. So the thing has happened, but it, the cause and effect are not synchronous. And he's he's processing it in this sort of delayed way, and there's a moment where he's talking to Johnny, and it sort of seems important, um, uh, where he's sort of denigra- he's denigrating his own art, and he's saying, uh, "Let me see where I can I can find it." Um, It's the difference between B being dead, B his daughter. It's the difference between B being dead and being alive. What I'm playing is B dead, you dig? Well, what I want to, what I want to. And um, so that's one of those lines that's actually like a lot better in Spanish. There's this way in which he's 
there's this thing that he wants, and this is another one of those moments where I do do wonder if he was thinking of Augustine's confessions, where, Hmm. like, Augustine is talking about the death of a friend and the way that, like, the memory of the—he's, like, avoiding the things that the memory of the Hmm. friend brought to him because it brings him back into this um, kind of state of, like, melancholy and pain, and uh, he ultimately decides that, like, the problem was that he had failed to love his friend— humanitaire like humanly right he had loved another mortal as though that person was both immortal and the one necessary ob- object that, that could compete for his own selfhood right uh, to borrow from rowan williams um uh our great temptation is inhuman love loving the finite for what it cannot be loving people or things for the magical symbiotic relationship they have to my sense of myself my security and self-identity um and so that kind of like that particular type of grief. It's a refusal to speak, to let time pass so that representation and meaning can happen, not consolation, not explanation, but a position in the world that can be owned and communicated. And that's Ron Williams on Augustine. And I feel like Johnny is in some way out of time. He's playing be dead in a way that is not, um, that's sort of like, it's sort of broken off from what he what he wants to do and is separated from a kind of process of actually like incorporating that and moving on in, into some sort of more human meaning. And yet because he's doing that, because he's playing from that really raw place, the music is tremendously powerful. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me read a passage from early on, both because I think it gives a sense of that relationship to time and also because – you know the the language is uh, even in translation. There's a an original. The prose has an original style. Um, it's a thing he does with dropped words yeah. and um, verb tenses. It, it gives it a very distinctive. This is the, that bit about yeah. Es la diferencia entre que vi haya muerto y que esté viva. Lo que yo toco es vi muerta, sabes. Mientras que Lo que yo quiero, lo que yo quiero, and the difference between lo que yo quiero, lo que yo quiero, and what I want is what I want is pretty yeah, stark. Yeah, yeah, you know yeah. what I mean? Yeah. So this not, is, not to crap on the translator, but like that no, was one of those I, moments I, where I like understand. there's yeah. a rhythm to that that yeah. is like different. There's a passage fairly early in the story where uh, Bruno is describing the, the changes in Johnny. Johnny's strange relationship to time as he sees it. And he's also talking about his, um, you know, his descent, but he's recalling this session with Johnny and Miles Davis. I'd gone to the rehearsal just to talk to him and also to Miles Davis. Everybody wanted to play. They were happy and well-dressed. This occurs to me maybe by contrast with how Johnny goes around now dirty and messed up. They were playing for the pleasure of it without the slightest impatience, and the sound technician was making happy signs from behind his glass window like a satisfied baboon. And just at that moment when Johnny was like gone in his joy, suddenly he stopped playing and threw a punch at I don't know who and said, I'm playing this tomorrow. And the boys stopped short. Two or three of them went on for a few minutes, like a train slowly coming to a halt, and Johnny was hitting himself in the forehead and repeating, I already played this tomorrow, 
It's horrible, Miles. I already played this tomorrow. And they couldn't get him out of that. And everything was lousy from then on. Johnny was playing without any spirit and wanted to leave. To shoot up again, the sound technician said, mad as hell. And when I saw him go out, reeling, and his face like ashes, I wondered how much longer that business could go on. Um... Yeah, I don't know if that gives you the, the be- that passage gives you the best sense of what Cortazar does with language in this story, uh, but it does give you a sense of this sort of who who is the pursuer and who is the pursued. Yeah, right. Obviously, Bruno is pursuing Johnny. He's watching this session. Mm-hmm. Johnny is pursuing something in the music. He's in the midst of the session, but Johnny's also pursuing something outside of the music that he's trying to access through the music, which he already did tomorrow. And now he's stuck here having already done it tomorrow and he can't get out of that. So it ruins it. Um, You know, and and this sort of knot that he's inside of can't be untied. And Bruno's way of dealing with this is to, you know, just edit troublesome aspects of Johnny out of the story of Johnny so that it's more containable, less threatening in time. You know, it's and it's to take it's to take the uh, genius out in some ways. You know, he wouldn't wor- use the word genius, but it's it's to take the originality out or the, the singularity of it out. It's 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 to categorize it and kill it. In, mm. Instead, the whole, part of the whole thing is that it's that movement forward, right? You know, there's yeah. there's this great bit where he's describing what Johnny had done, um, in terms of uh, to music, and he describes those early recordings as an explosion in music, but a cold, silent explosion, an explosion where everything remained in its place, and there were no screams or debris flying. After Johnny's step with the alto sax, you couldn't keep listening to earlier musicians and think that they were the end. Hmm. And so it's that sort of like pushing forward, moving forward um, versus sort of the kind of classification that deadens it. And there's also – there's a bit um, where he's trying to figure out like sort of later where he's trying to figure out the difference between him and Johnny and some of the other people in the orbit. Um, And he says – uh, you know, he's like, he, he wants to say like, oh, Johnny's some kind of angel come to men, but that's, you know, but then he says, until some elementary honesty forces me to swallow the sentence, turn it around nicely and realize that maybe what is really happening is that Johnny is a man among angels, one reality among the unrealities that are the rest of us. Maybe that's why Johnny touches my faith with his fingers and makes me feel so unhappy, so transparent, so damn small in spite of my good health, my house, my wife, my prestige, my prestige above all, above all, my prestige. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. I mean, harsh, but great. Yeah. <laughs> um, and I, I love, there's this uh, David Jones, great modernist poet, um, mostly famous for in parentheses, account of World War One, which is tremendous, wrote an essay called Art and Sacrament. He's also a very good painter. Um where he talks about uh, a Cezanne as being like, that's not a painting of a mountain. It is mountain under the form of paint. Mm. And that art is a sort of sacramental making mm. act. Uh, and he divides things up with angels, all spirit, no sacrament. Animals, all body, no sacrament. 
man, spirit, and body together, sacrament everywhere, right? Yeah, but that sacramental quality, mm-hmm. this comes right back to stuckism, conceptual art. Mountain under paint mm-hmm. requires mountain. Right. Requires mountain. All paint, no mountain, mm-hmm. nothing. But not nothing. Just will to power. Yeah. You know, it's nothing unless you say, but it's nothing that you're calling something. So therefore, it's a claim on the world. It's a claim to power. It's a will to power. There's a bit where, so there's a bit in Hopscotch, which is a really interesting book. As soon as you point at the thing that's not there. Yeah. And you say, not... I ask you to see some. Not I'm trying to communicate right. with you, but you know you 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 sort of assert it in this way. You're making a claim to power. <laughs> That's all. Yeah. Um, where there, the characters are discussing, uh, like it's basically these kind of obnoxious Parisian intellectuals, and they're discussing uh, the painters Clay and Mondrian, mm. and. Clay being sort of like a representative of a painterly tradition where you're taking all these kind of cultural artifacts and forms and sort of figurative forms that we can recognize. Um, and so because you're using that, it requires a certain degree of cultural knowledge of his reference, right? Even if it, at a purely intuitive level with Mondrian being these like color scheme, purely sort of floating squ- – not floating but squares, abstract, um, pure formal abstraction, right? Uh and so this is from Hopscotch. Think about Mondrian a minute, Etienne was saying. Next to him, Clay's magic symbols are nothing. Clay played with fate, the gifts of culture. Pure sensibility can be satisfied with Mondrian, but you need a whole bag of other tricks with Clay. A sophisticate for sophisticates. Chinese, really. Mondrian, on the other hand, paints the absolute. Stand naked in front of him, and it's one thing or the other. Either you see or you don't see. Pleasure, thrills, illusions, fears, delights are comp- completely su- superfluous. Um, uh, and they sort of disagree about mm. that. He's saying, he's saying that basically the pa- a painting like one of Clay's calls for a degree at lettres, or at least at as poesies, while all Mondrian wants is for a person to Mondrianate, and that's all. That's not it, Etienne says. Of course it is, Oliveri says. According to you, a Mondrian canvas is sufficient into itself. Therefore, it calls upon your innocence more than on your experience. I mean, Edenic innocence, not stupidity. Even that metaphor you used about standing naked in front of a picture has a pre-Adamite smell about it. Paradoxically, Clay is much more modest since he asks for the cooperation of the viewer and is not sufficient unto himself. The fact of the matter is that Clay is history while Mondrian is atemporality, and you're dying to find the absolute. Do I make myself clear? The absolute, Lamaga was saying, kicking a pedal from pubble to pubble. What is an absolute, Horatio? Look, Olivier said, it's just that moment when something attains its maximum death its maximum reach, its maximum sense, and becomes completely uninteresting. <laughs> That's good. <laughs> yeah. And uh, maybe, I think we sort of discussed this, but maybe I'll end with one thing about Cortázar describing his own style. Because he, he, he describes himself as like a failed musician mm-hmm. and how when he was born, um, the... Uh, the fairies that tossed blessings and curses into the baby's cradle. One decided I could be a musician, but there was another who decided I would never be capable of handling a musical instrument. Uh, and so he had to become a writer. Um, and he talks about sort of this kind of pulse that is essential to him in, in, in writing. 
Uh, and he says, because if there is something we are sensitive to, it is profound intuitions, irrational things. We really are, even if our intellect often goes on the defensive and forbids them, denies us access to them, the great pulsations of blood, of the flesh, of nature, move outside the realm of the intellect, and there is no way to control them through logic. And that is why he, his emphasis is on what he calls a musicality of style. Right to establish a special connection that the reader might not perceive but is awakening in him the same perhaps ancestral thing, that same sense of rhythm we all have, which makes us accept certain movements, certain forces, and certain beats. In a way, we read that kind of prose similarly to how we listen to certain kinds of music and we plunge headlong into a kind of current that takes us out of ourselves and places us somewhere else. Mm. And I think that notion of what writing can do, if it has that musicality, is intimately related to what he feels Johnny and Johnny Carter's shares, you know, Cortazar's initials, what Johnny is pursuing in the art and can't articulate it. But part of that is because it can't be articulated in, you know, Bruno's filthy language, but it is communicated in the sound and the sense of the art. Yeah. I am the strange hero of hunger. My girlfriend lives on the other side of the world and has started reading Crime and Punishment by Fyodor Dostoevsky. Do you recognise the main character? I ask her excitedly. Doesn't he remind you of me? I've only just begun, she answers. What's his name? Roger. But all the characters have about three different names. I always get confused and can't tell who's who because I'm dyslexic and don't make sounds for the names. But Roger's for short and his sister's called Dunya. Isn't Dunya a beautiful name? If little Huddy had been born a girl, we'd have named her Dunya. When I talk of the beauty of girls' names, or the strange bravery of artists, or see the light change over sea and sky, every second impossible showers of gold turn into terrible hues of purple and black, and my heart rate quickens because I'm amongst my own people. I am the hero of all of my favourite novels, I live in them and they live in me. I'm Arturo Bandini on Angel's Flight, swearing at a beautiful dark-haired girl in tattered shoes. I'm Roger, guilty of a terrible and senseless murder on the streets of St. Petersburg. I'm the strange hero of hunger, starving to spite myself in Christiana. I'm Johan Nagel, tormentor of the midget and suicide. I'm Ishmael, knocker-off of tall hats. I am every novelist and every character ever dreamed. I am every one of my favourite artists and feel myself not one jot less but equal to all of them. Turner, Monk, Holbein and Hockersay. Naturally, I have no heroes. I am my heroes. I am my brothers and sisters. I feel myself joined by the soul with all beauty. My heart sings with every brave endeavour, with the strange wings of impossible butterflies with every rock that breathes life into the world. I stand shoulder to shoulder with all denouncers of meanness. I honour spirit and faith and uphold the glorious amateur. I am in love with desperate men with desperate hands, walking in second-hand shoes, searching for God and hearing God and hating God. I am a desperate man buckled with fear. I am a desperate man who demands to be listened to, who demands to connect. I'm a desperate man who denounces the dullness of money and status. I'm a desperate man who will not bow down to accolade or success. I'm a desperate man 
who loves the simplicity of painting and hates galleries and white walls and the dealers in art, who loves unreasonableness and hot-headedness, who loves contradiction, hates publishing houses, and also I am Vincent van Gogh, Hiroshige, and every living, breathing artist who dares to draw God on this planet. <laughs>